As we look at this section, we are coming into a portion of Paul's letter to Titus, where he is really urging the members of the household of faith, those Christians who trust in, uh, who trust in Christ, to have consistent behavior. Not that it would just be consistent, uh, you know, that is, uh, that it would be a repetitive and a pattern, but that it would be a behavior that would be consistent with God's character. And he does this by pointing out the contrast that is to exist between God's people, those who have been made a part of his family, and those who are a part of the world. If you look back, if you flip over to uh, chapter 1, he uh, begins this contrast in chapter 1, verse 15, saying, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So there's this contrast of those those who are pure and those who are uh, are defiled, those who are unbelieving. Nothing is pure. He says, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. He goes on in verse 16 and says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so what we really see here is that as Paul remarks upon this, he's really speaking to those who claim to be Christians, who say that they know God, but yet their character does not reflect God's character. Those who are Christians who, uh, who, are, who are making this claim, he says they profess to know God. They say, they make this claim, but their works really, they deny that this claim. They deny the truth uh, that they are seeking to proclaim. And he says that these people, when you live in this way, that you are described as being disobedient and unfit for any good work. That is Paul's claim that he's saying is that you cannot be used by God if you are claiming to know him, but your work, your life is not in line with his nature. If you're not living as he wants you to live, he, he can't use you in the way that he wants to use you. And so he, uh, Paul has been, been making this, this emphasis, and he, he, he kind of starts to, to make his big uh, thesis statement here to Titus, uh, declaring that the, the leaders of the church, the elders, should be faithful to proclaim sound doctrine. If you flip over uh, just even one verse to uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What Paul's saying there is that we need to get back to the fundamental basics. We need to get to doctrine, truth, that is sound, that is foundational, that is trustworthy. This is what what he's getting at, that we need to be emphasizing the truth of the gospel again and again and again and again. The truth of the gospel. Isn't this the way that Paul operates? So often he writes a letter, he writes a letter that is uh, to very different crowds. Romans is different than 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Romans is different than Ephesians. You know, we have Colossians and Galatians and Philippians. Like, all of these things, these different uh, letters that Paul writes, they are all uh, 
two very, very different crowds. And of course, he addresses each of them in their context. But again and again and again and again, Paul is consistent with emphasizing the foundational aspects of the gospel. What he's doing there is he's reminding us that we never stray far from the gospel. This is why so often we come back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Again and again and again and again. Paul, you know, speaking there to a church, to Christians, he says, but I would remind you, brothers, he's telling, he's speaking to the church, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel of which you have heard, which you have received, which you now stand in. Right? He, he, he's helping us understand that there are these various different phases of life that you are going through, various phases of maturity, but each time as you move through life, you're interacting with the gospel in a new way. It's the same truth, the same power, in a new season of life. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, which you've heard, which you've received, which you've now stand in, and which is proclaimed among you. Stand firm in it. He's he's there reminding them that the centrality of the gospel is so important. And so, he reminds Titus here, he says, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so this is his emphasis as he's contrasting those who profess to, to know God. It's, I mean, that's, that, that's really, as we consider it, it's a pretty scary reminder. It's a pretty stark uh, exhortation that he makes there. That there are, are people who are Christians. When we have to ask that question of ourselves, are we these people? Who profess to know God, but... We deny him in our works. Are we really doing the things that God calls us to do? Are we living the way that God calls us to live? Are we obeying him? This is what he is getting at. And so we come to our text for this morning in verse 11. And Paul is again emphasizing the truth, the power of the gospel. And he, he, he goes about explaining this through, uh, through the lens of grace. Through the lens of grace. Because that's really what the gospel is. That none of us deserve this grace, this favor that God has given us. It's, it's a, you know, as we, as we look at the truth of the gospel, God has been merciful towards us. And that we've not received the punishment that we should have received for our sin. But beyond that, he's been gracious towards us and that he's brought us into his family. He's given us things that we did not deserve. And so uh, here, Paul comes and explains the truth of the gospel through this lens of grace. Look at verse 11. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, as Paul comes here and explains the grace of God appearing, of course, he's, this is really referencing all of God's actions, all of God's efforts on our behalf. All the things that God has done. I mean, he's, he's really summing up all that God has accomplished on our behalf. 
How has God's grace been demonstrated? Well, he says that God's grace has appeared. And it, and it seems like what he's really alluding to here is the incarnation. That Jesus became a man. He came and condescended, as Paul explains in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was God, he did not consider his, his rights there as God, but instead he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of man, being obedient to the Father. Here he says that this is God's gracious act. The grace of God has appeared. And there's a purpose for this appearing. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So what Paul does is he, he, he's, he's giving us a timeline, right? Paul loves to do this. He give, he's giving us a timeline. He constantly keeps us in attention where we're in the present and where we're having to straddle uh, both the past and the future at the same time in order to understand how we ought to operate in the present. It's like he, he loves doing this. And I think it's important for us to understand because when you remember the past— when you look to the future, it really shapes how you can live in the present. It, it does. It helps us operate more wisely in the present. Paul lays forth this timeline, connecting both the incarnation, Christ's coming to the earth, and the cross— so that we might understand the future glory that awaits. He's, he's looking at the incarnation, the life of Christ. His perfect, sinless life. His death on our behalf and the resurrection. And he's helping us understand that this is what makes future glory possible. Were it not for God's grace appearing, we would be sunk. We would be in trouble. But God's grace has appeared. And then he goes on in verse 12 to tell us, here's how the truth of the gospel, God's grace appearing for us in the form of Jesus, here's what it has done for us. When you truly understand, when you know the truth of the gospel, here's what it does. He says in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. God's grace trains us. It teaches us, is what he's getting at here. It, really what this is, is it's the idea of what a parent does for a child. It sees out into the future, sees the pitfalls that await uh, a child, sees the skills that they will need to be successful in the future, and this really speaks to this entire process. Training, teaching, encouraging, correcting, disciplining. As you deal with uh, children, these are the many steps that it takes. This is why we said Paul can speak to uh, the, the vast application of the truth of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He knows these different phases. As we grow, as children, the gospel applies. We've heard it, received it, we stand in it. Here he says, we have to understand 
the gospel. We have to understand the grace of God. And what it does is it teaches us, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So the first thing is what it helps us avoid, what it helps us remove from our lives, ungodliness and worldly passions. Of course, ungodliness is pretty self-explanatory there, right? It's living in a way that is not godly, not reflecting God's character, and this is what, of course, he's trying to address here with his hearers. But then the other aspect of it is worldly passions. And I think that the combination of both of these things often go together. We have often a desire to be passionate, to love, to pursue, to enjoy things other than Jesus. And of course, these things most frequently manifest themselves in the, in the forms of, uh, you know, wealth, power, fame. They, off, they operate in uh, this self-idolatry thinking that everything that, you, that is within your uh, reach belongs to you, that you are the ultimate decider in your life. And what Paul says here is that we have to be trained, one, not to live this way, but more than that, what does he say? training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What this is, is it's a verbal commitment. It's, it's a public verbal commitment to not participate in these things. That you aren't, it's not that you just aren't participating, but that you're vocally against them. That you are making this public commitment. You're renouncing them. Oftentimes, what happens in... Uh, our current society, is that if there is a country that wants to provide citizenship for another, sometimes those countries require that you renounce your citizenship from your uh, former country. And so it's not that you can have dual citizenship, but you actually have to go and say, I will no longer be a citizen of this country. My loyalties have changed. I am completely uh, disconnected from my previous life, my previous nationality, my previous culture, and now I am giving my full and wholehearted allegiance to this new country, this new culture that is giving me uh, citizenship. There's, there's this, uh, this confirmation that you have to give. Now the confusion comes right when then you see that person next to somebody who holds dual citizenship and the countries don't call them to renounce citizenship because then that person can kind of play both fields. It's like, well, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm a little bit more from this country or that other country or, you know, what I'm, what I'm really wanting to do is enjoy all the cultural aspects of, of that. And uh, even though I'm a part of a new, a new country, a new nationality, and uh, I really want to enjoy some of these older things and, uh, of, of my heritage. And, and what Paul's saying here is that that old heritage is done. It's dead. You are a part of a new country, a new nation, a, a holy nation that Christ has given to you. And so there is nothing left to enjoy in your old life. We have to be trained to renounce 
ungodliness and worldly passions. And this means that in the process of renouncing worldly passions, we have to learn how to apply the gospel. We have to learn how to apply the truth of the gospel to every area in your life, and specifically the things that you are passionate about. Because if you do not apply the truth of the gospel to that, then you're going to invest in worldly passions and not in godly opportunity for sanctification. Now, I will dive a little bit deeper and tell you this. Applying the gospel to your worldly passions doesn't mean finding out, like, is there biblical precedent for what you're doing? That's not what it means. And it doesn't mean, additionally, it doesn't mean uh, understanding the gospel and finding out if it's sinful or not sinful. It goes deeper than that, as we've discussed many times. There are many things that are good things that turn out to be sinful things because that's not what God's calling us to. There are many things that are good things that we could see how they could serve the Lord faithfully, but end up just being not honoring to God because that's not how the Lord's working, and that's not what he wants you to do. That's not the, the season of life he's calling you into. You have to go into the heart motive. You have to go deeper. You have to press the gospel into the, the deepest part, uh, parts of your heart so that it, it exposes the idols. It exposes the things that you are wanting to fight for viciously. Now, I will tell you this. As I'm saying these things, you have something in your mind right now that you're like, no, this is not the thing that we're talking about. That's the thing. The thing that you're uncomfortable about right now, the thing that you're thinking of like, well, does it really apply? That's the thing. Okay? You need to press into that. Go after that. Whatever that is. And we've all got them because we all prefer ourselves above other people. And we're in the process of surrendering ourselves to Jesus so he can give us his identity. We can be sanctified in him. And so, do the hard work of applying the gospel to your life, but also be reminded, like, you're not alone. Like, we're, we're all trying to do this, and we're all super broken and trying to figure it out. So it's okay if you feel like this is an issue that you need to deal with. The gospel will speak to it. It will show you. It will convict you. It will call you to repentance. And just when you've gone far enough, just when you've gotten to the place where you feel like, I am a terrible train wreck, the gospel also swoops in and says, Jesus knows. He knows. And that's why he paid for those sins. Because he knew that you would be a little idolater trying to protect that little thing in your life. And so he's simultaneously working uh, to convict you of sin and simultaneously reminding you that you have been justified. And so find your identity in him. Don't try to protect this little stupid thing that you're, that you're wanting to keep others from. You're wanting to keep the Lord from. Surrender. What Paul says here is that without the grace of God, you can never, ever live in a God-honoring way. Without God's grace, you just can't do it. And so this means that, of course, we can't you know, enable our own obedience. We have to rely on him. We have to trust him. We have to ask him to empower us. But we must learn to renounce ungodliness and 
worldly passions. Now, that's what we uh, have to prohibit, remove from our lives. Now we come to what we must do, what we must participate in. He says that we also ought to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. These are the things that are to characterize us in the world. That we should live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. These are the things that are to contrast against these, uh, you know, vices, renouncing or ungodliness and worldly passions. We have to live soberly, self-controlled. Self-mastery is what it's getting at there. Not that you can do it on your own, but that you are surrendered to God in such a way that he has control over you. That you've denied yourself. And if Christ is in you, and you're able to control yourself, it's because you're under Jesus' control. Too often when we think about self-controlled, we equate that with doesn't bother others. That's not what he's talking about. Self-controlled doesn't mean not annoying to other people. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks away because you just like, you know, keep your hands to yourself sort of thing, like stay, stay with yourself. But what this really means is that you have mastery, control over your life in such a way that you are able to deny yourself to take up your cross and follow Jesus. That when those worldly passions arise, then you say, no, I'm going to press into Christ. I'm going to see how the truth of the gospel applies to this area in my life. You have to develop this discipline. It comes with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You have to develop this because the temptations to make your own decision, to rely on yourself, will keep coming. We live in this world where... Things are often put before us as temptations. And as we were saying before, even things that look and appear to be good can be those temptations. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Everything must be submitted to the Lord. Everything must come under His Lordship. We must live self-controlled, upright, righteous lives, godly lives, When? In this present age. In the present. Here it is. Paul is now giving us the command we are to to live currently in this present age, knowing what has happened in the past. Jesus has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. And we have to live now in the present with that knowledge, with that mindset. We come to verse 13 and now look to the future. We shift to the future waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have the mindset to look for a future blessed hope, if you're focused on the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, it will have an impact on the way you live now. If you're looking to that future, to that future goal, it's going to affect how you live. 
There's this tension that exists that Paul has been trying to develop between the past, the present, and the future. The already and not yet. We know that we've been declared by God to be his, to be a part of his family. We know that we, as uh, we've been reading in 1 Peter, that we have been born again to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, waiting for us. But yet at the same time, we live in a world where we are still broken and sinful. We have been, our, our status has been declared, but we are now waiting for the fulfillment of that status. And, and here, what he says is, keep going, have your conduct be uh, in concert in nature with your future title, son or daughter of God. Live up to that title that you've been given. It won't be taken away from you. It has been provided already. And so Paul looks to the past work of Christ in order to ground his call to live, you know, these self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. Just as he began, he then circles back to look at the foundational work of Christ. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Of course, he's reflecting on what Jesus has already done for us. He speaks similarly in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 5 and 6. He says, There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Very similar to how he writes here, in verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us. That idea of redemption, we've talked about this, you know, when we studied the book of Ruth. We talked about this several times. But this idea here is this deliverance from, uh, from being uh, enslaved or, or being put into this position of um, indebtedness. And what Paul says here is that we are enslaved to lawlessness. We are enslaved to this sinful life. And so we need to be redeemed. We need to be set free from this slavery by the payment of a price. And so what he says here is, as slaves, we couldn't pay for ourselves. We couldn't free ourselves. We couldn't rescue ourselves. And so therefore, Jesus gave himself for us. He lived in our place. He was substituted for us. If you recall, we, we looked at this in First Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He himself bore our sins is what Peter gets at. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's this exchange that's happening, a substitution. Because we are all slaves of sin. Uh, Paul 
Paul really gets into the descriptive nature of, of, of the situation that we are in in, in uh, chapter 3 of Titus. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But now we've been freed. We've been made, uh, we've been ransomed is what he's, he says here. By his death, by his resurrection, God in his grace forgives and frees those of us who trust in Christ for salvation. Now we've been freed, not for our own purposes, but for his purposes. Of course, uh, this echoes of what we've read in 1 Peter chapter 2. But more than that, uh, it goes back to its historic roots uh, in Exodus 19. This redemption... It's, it's dual purpose. We've been freed from sin, but freed to worship. Or, as Paul says here, freed to a life of purity. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. In Exodus chapter 19, it's, it's that uh, iconic moment on Mount Sinai, where God is creating the covenant with the children of Israel, right? If you recall, as we studied the book of Exodus, what happens is Moses goes in and he uh, tells Pharaoh, hey, uh, the God of Israel wants you to let his people go. But it doesn't, it's not just that, it's not just like free them. He's letting, he wants them to let uh, God's people go so that they might go and worship him. They're being taken out of one situation and being brought into another for a purpose. And here, as the Lord meets them on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, here what, here's what the Lord says to the nation. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among my, all my peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's like straight out of 1 Peter 2. Peter sees the same concept. Paul sees the same concept here as he says that we are a people for his own possession. Because we belong to Jesus, we are his special people. We ought to obey him and it should result in good works. Look at how Paul says we should live. He says we should be a people who are zealous for good works. What do those good works do? What do the good works do? Well, they're not there to earn salvation. They're there to point to the Savior. They're there to say, look at these good works that reflect God's character, that reflect God's nature. Why would people act, live in this way? Why would they be kind, generous, loving? When we operate in good works, what we're doing is we're essentially putting Jesus on display. We're, we're pointing to him. 
And so we should have this type of enthusiasm, excitement to perform these good works because it's an opportunity to demonstrate that we belong to him and to worship him. That's why uh, the children of Israel were rescued. They were removed from slavery so that they might worship him. And through our good works, God is glorified. He's worshiped. He's exalted. We look to the past and we look to the future to inform how we live in the present. We live standing in the truth of the gospel filtering everything through the gospel, having our identity rooted in Christ, and then we live in such a way that glorifies God, that both draws more people into a relationship with him, but also is kind of the foreshadowing of what we will be experiencing and enjoying in the future. Glorifying God, enjoying him forever. And so Paul's emphasis here is not so much get your behavior in order, but really just remember that your identity is in Christ. And when you remember that you belong to him and he belongs to you, you press into him and enjoy him. Like you, you can't help, you can't help but enjoy him and, and celebrate and worship. And it comes to a point where it's, it's, it's natural. And you interact with the world on the basis of the identity he's given you rather than trying to protect the identity that you've formed for yourself or that you want others to see. We're a people for his own possession that he's purifying. We've been redeemed from all lawlessness to purify, to be purified. He is already said that we are pure, that we are clean, that we have this inheritance. We are just simply in the process of sanctification, of learning to come under his lordship, to let him make us new, to make us clean. And we pursue that so that we might know him and enjoy him and that he might be glorified in his church. It's an exciting, exciting journey. As we come out, uh, you know, on that other side, I think, you know, we'll be, we'll be surprised as we stand around and we look at each other like, wow, look at what the Lord's done in you. Look at how he's changed you and transformed you. Like, that's so satisfying to see how God has worked in the lives of others, how he's matured them. And you know, like, because we know each other, like how stubborn we can all be. That's like, okay, only God could have done that. <laughs> only God could have done that. Because we all don't want to listen. But it's, it's so amazing when he does. And he is glorified when we submit ourselves to him, when we come under his, his lordship. So let's respond together now as we recognize his lordship, as we um, confess that we belong to him and that uh, you know, we're a part of his family. Let's, let's respond together uh, in worship.
Lord, we are thankful for your kindness to us. Lord, that you've given us new life through your Son. You've demonstrated your love towards us at the cross. And while we were sinners, while we were your enemies, Lord, you laid down your life for us, not requiring anything from us or asking anything from us, but simply um, wanting to be generous towards us. And so, Lord, we say thank you. We want to tell you, Lord, that we love you, that it's, it's an honor, a privilege to be a part of your family. And Lord, we ask that you would call us to worship now. Lord, we want to respond in thanksgiving and gratefulness. We love you, Jesus. Amen.